You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, folks, uh, we definitely have um, what I think is a really, really important episode today. My guest is Amy Patrick. Many of you know Amy. Uh, some of you might know of Amy, but probably know her more through her husband, Darren Patrick. Darren was one of those pastors and leaders that even if you had never met him, you felt like you knew him because of just how open and available he was about his life. And uh, as many people know, Darren tragically took his life in May of 2020. And uh, Amy and Darren actually happened to come on the show together just a couple of months before that. And that was the first time I had met either of them. I know that they had both gotten into my book and I'd had quite a bit of correspondence, particularly with Darren. Um, but I, I really appreciate having couples on the show, particularly couples in ministry, because they bring something that just somebody by themselves does not bring. And so I came away just with tremendous respect for, for Darren and Amy. And like many of you, was completely shocked when I, when I heard the news. Um, I, I did not know Darren well, but I have many dear friends who would consider themselves dear friends of Darren. And it, it just really hurt. So I reached out to Amy a few months ago and just asked if it would be helpful to her or if she'd be interested in coming on the show. And she very graciously agreed to come on. So Amy, thank you so much for joining us on Managing Leadership Anxiety. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to get to chat with you. Yeah, I, I'm really appreciative too, because um, I, I think you do have something that we need. And I, I just wanted to frame this for our listeners that obviously my, my bread and butter work is chronic anxiety, which is built on false need and false belief. But what you've gone through is uh, different forms of anxiety. One of them is acute anxiety, which is actual life and death. And the other one is grief. And my experience of grief as somebody who has lost uh, uh, several people I dearly love is it, it always has its own agenda. It's, it's, I just, it's the whole experience of grief and anxiety is a complete, uh, it feels like I'm being tossed and turned in the ocean. So I just wanted to hear from you, Amy, first of all, just to share maybe a taste of what grief is like, uh, maybe what it was like initially and what it's like now. Let's start there. Sure. You know, I often say that grief is a mess. <laughs> and that's, you know, one of the best words that I've found. Um, and I think what you said is is very true. There is a very unpredictable nature to it. And you can read a lot about grief and what to expect and what a grief process might look like. But, you know, in my experience, I find myself caught off guard a lot by what will um what will shock me in a particular moment or when I will feel particularly sad or how a particular moment will hit me or affect me. Um, and it's been very surprising um, and unpredictable, I would say. I think that's very accurate. Yeah. And and it, it feels like it's also its own work. Like it feels like you've been to the gym and you didn't know it. Like you're just exhausted. Yes. It's, it's definitely exhausting. And I think the physical aspect of it and how grief affects us physically, I think is, I, I wish we would talk about it more. Um, and I wish we would talk about it more. And I hope we talk about it more, you know, not so much in, in talking about the first few weeks or months and how tired people might feel, but sort of how that 
persists, um, you know, longer than that. And how, you know, I think culturally we're just, we're so about uh, getting back after it and, and when will it be better and how soon can I expect to feel differently? And it, it's a long process. I think most of the kind of inner work that I have found to be vital to my relationship with Christ is, is much slower than I would prefer. And I think even understanding grief and even those physical effects of it um, has certainly fit into that category. Yeah. It, it almost feels to me like grief is um, like a really heavy wet coat that someone put on me that just weighs me down. So it's like I'm carrying extra weight. Yes. And then there's some, there's some point in my life, I think, oh, now I've put the coat on the coat rack. Uh, but then it just suddenly shows up again. Like, it's a weird metaphor, but it's like it, it's like grief is a thousand memories a day. Yes. And a thousand triggers. And you never know which one's going to set you off and which one is a pleasant memory. It's such a weird, uh, disorienting experience. It is. I, I, it's interesting. I just had an experience in the past week, actually, where... You know, I was visiting with some friends um, who have known me at, at various stages of my life. And one of them was sharing a particular story about me. <clears throat> and we were talking about it. And I immediately felt myself feeling very sad um, and really missing Darren in ways that had not been new to me in a while. And I, and I realized, um, you know, Darren, you know, I met Darren when I was 15, you know, and, and he died when I was 46. So um, there were many aspects of my life that, he was the the witness to um, that maybe no one else was the witness to, and so there is a sense where you you I have felt like I've lost pieces of my own history um, because the primary person who was a witness to those is no longer there, and so you know he was in many ways the person who understood how all those patches fit in the quilt, um, for lack of a better word. And there there's been a grief for me at times, even with a happy memory of thinking, you know no one else was here for that um, except him. And he's not here anymore either. So that's been an interesting piece of grief for me to discover for sure. Yeah. And as it relates to suicide, it, it's, such a, it's such a vulnerable topic. I, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around it. I think a lot of people still tragically, I think, see it through the lens of selfishness. Mm -hmm. But Darren was not a selfish person. Um, I, I have had some friends take their life and completely sweep me off my feet by it. And it's almost as if in the moment for them, it somehow felt like relief. Like, mm -hmm. like it was this, they, they just lost a sense of reason or they, they had some kind of euphoria that put them into a false reality. I, I, I have found in my own life, it's the, it's the cognitive dissonance, Amy, that I'm left with that I cannot resolve. Like I keep trying to think and think and think and think my way to some kind of resolution. Yes. How's that journey been for you? Well, yes, um, we were completely caught off guard. You know, some people have more of a story where they are very aware of those tendencies, you know, in a person and are really trying to prevent that. Um, now, I, I had seen Darren that way, you know, when he really had a personal implosion, um, you know, about five years earlier, I'd absolutely seen him in a state that that was suicidal and really thought that I knew what that looked like um, for him. Um, but that was not the state that I perceived him to be in, you know, at the time that he died. And so you absolutely start, you know, from the moment the police showed up at my door, I I'm trying to figure out, you know, what in the world um, has happened here. And you you can just endlessly walk down a path of trying to figure it out. 
excuse me, I think part of what has helped me is to know that, you know, when anyone takes their own life, they're, I, I, I believe they are not in a rational state. Um, I I don't think anyone does that kind of damage to themselves in a rational state. And so in some ways I, I feel that when we're trying to make sense of it, we're trying to use rationality to explain something that, that isn't rational. You know, in our case, I think after just, you know, pondering and ruminating and praying and, and going over a thousand things, I could put together a story that says, yes, that makes sense in some ways. And I could also put together a story that runs parallel to it that says, there's absolutely no way that that happened. (laughs) Um, And I have had to um, accept some mystery is, is the best term that I can use, that there is some mystery here that continuing to try to find an answer will not be helpful to me. It's not helpful to my children. Um, it doesn't get me any further down the road. It sort of leaves me stuck, um, in a cycle of things that I don't know that I will ever understand, um, in this life. And so, you know, I guess that that could be called avoidance or that could be called not wanting to know. Um, but in my case, there has been a great deal of peace, um, for me in, in being able to accept that there are things in this life that I don't think we'll ever understand. Um, there are things about God that I don't think I'll ever understand, you know? And so mystery is, is tricky. We like clarity. Um, and, and sometimes I think we think that answers will give us the peace that we want. And, and I don't know that I believe that in the same way I once would have. Yeah. Yeah. As I hear you describe it and, and, you know, suggest that some might see it as avoidance. I, it sounds to me like wisdom because the rumination about something you can never know is actually a form of anxiety. Like it's evidence yes. that you're anxious. And what you're describing is a, a faith. You, you simply have to have faith in something that you simply can't make sense of. The futility of trying to worry your way to peace, that to me is the avoidance is, is yes. when you try to understand it. So it's, yeah, it sounds like a lot of wisdom to me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of, you know, as you know, I was a trauma chaplain and had an intense year of being with people where I watched caregivers take care of grievers. Well, I don't think, you know, Amy, in, in our church, we've had a number of young dads die mm-hmm. in a very short amount of time. And uh, most of them were my dear friends. Uh, three of them in three years in a row were some of my mm-hmm. closest friends. and. So I would be in the house, not just in the aftermath, but in the weeks and months following. And I got to see firsthand the well-intentioned caregiver that is so anxious that the widow or the widower is now having to care for the caregiver. I I didn't quite say that well, but this dynamic that somebody means so well, they really want to help you, but they're so anxious to help you, you find yourself having to manage their help. I, I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about that. Yes, uh, we've definitely experienced that. And it, it's so, I feel like the topic is so tricky because you know that people mean well, like people tr- really mean well for you. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a piece of it. And also I feel like what's hard is often, I feel like the advice um, that is given to people about how to, how to care for people who are in pain tends to be a long list of what not to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> so don't do this and don't say this and don't do this. And so you know, sometimes I feel like we leave people a little paralyzed with, well, what am I supposed to do? But I've certainly experienced what you're talking about um, in a couple of ways. One, with people who 
you know, did not realize, I think, that what they were hoping that I would do was help them with their own grief. Um, they came from a position of wanting to meet me in the moment, um, but really were dealing with so much of their own grief that, you know, they were there was an unspoken expectation that I would help with that. And I can only describe that I could feel it, you know, from them. And there were, there have been a few people where I've had to say, I, I'm not going to be able to do that for you. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to help you with that. I wish I could, but I am attending to myself and four children. And that is, that's all I can do. That's plenty, you know, within itself. Um, I've, I've experienced that. I've also experienced people who, are not necessarily aware of their own need to help and how much they uh, need to feel needed or need to be able to do something, anything to make a difference in that situation. Um, and I've been there. I've certainly been on the other side of it. You know, I, I've so appreciated, you know, what you've said about that hospital chaplaincy, because I think anyone who's been in a hospital room, you know, with a grieving person in pain, you have this experience of, I do not want to do anything here that makes anything worse. I really want to help. Also trying to somehow be aware, this is absolutely not about me. This, is, this isn't about me at all, um, but it feels like it is on some levels. Um, and so, you know, I have found that the people who have really stayed with us kind of for the long haul, and we've fortunately had a lot of people who've been able to do that, are people who have been able to sort of separate what they needed, um, from what we needed and really be able to just be there, be themselves and that be enough. I think in this culture, you know, we just simply don't know what to do with death. I think what I very quickly learned in chaplaincy is, is death is the one thing that brings you to the end of yourself faster than anything else. It just, you suddenly, you think you have all these tools and these resources and, and in the face of death, you're kind of struck dumb. And I think what happens, Amy, I wanted to throw this by you and get your reaction. I think we don't realize that we're anxious. And so we try to shrink someone's pain down to a size that we can manage. Yes. And we do it by needing to say something or recommend a book, like something like we don't know, like what I learned in chaplaincy, and I I learned it very slowly, is it's all about restraint against the impulse to do. Yes. And I, I wasn't effective. I, my first few months of chaplaincy, I, I think I could safely say that almost everything I said to people was for myself. I didn't, yes. I thought it was for them. What's your reaction to that? Well, I completely agree. And I think it's very awkward uh, to, to just be present with someone and to not have to do anything. I've, I, particularly as you're learning to do that, it feels incredibly awkward. And I think we all want to feel an awkward space with something that feels more comfortable or just even fills it. Can we, something needs to happen here besides silence or tears or emotional reactions that are uncomfortable for us. And so, you know, I, I, I will say that. And I think the tricky part of this is, you know, often we learn what to do in these situations by being in them. You know, it's hard to prepare for them ahead of time. But I have found that the people who have been most able to be sort of that calm, you know, non-anxious presence um, for me and for my children have been people who 
have done the work um, themselves of knowing, knowing about their own anxiety, knowing what their tendencies are, knowing what goes on in their own heads, you know, with regard to those kinds of situations. And so, like I said, it's a little, it's a little bit of a tricky conundrum because you learn by doing it. But I also think there's work to do outside of the moment that if you, if you want to be a caregiver or not even a caregiver, but just someone who is able to be present for people, that kind of inner work I think is what best prepares you for that. Uh, I love that. Yeah. I, I try to train people to see how long they can be silent. Mm. Um, you know, you look at Job's comforters and they, they get a bad rap in the book of Job and rightly so they keep giving stupid advice, but they did sit for seven days in silence. That's way longer than your average pastor can do. Most definitely. <laughs> yeah. What What is it about pastors? I, I guess I'm picking on us a little bit, but I think we do have this need to share a scripture and pray. And people are surprised when I tell them that sometimes that's the worst thing to do. Sometimes it's the best thing to do. But mm-hmm. it definitely takes, a like I think, a spirit-led deliberation. Um, I, I've seen it so many times where a pastor's in that situation and nobody knows what to do. So the pastor steps in and takes charge and uses the Bible to take charge. And then at the end of it, everyone says, thank you, pastor even though it actually wasn't helpful at all. I think I'm pushing on something here, but do you have a reaction to that? Oh, absolutely. I think I think that we will, in those situations, I think we will use any tool available, you know, to try to uh, deal with our own anxiety and the awkwardness in the room and the sense of not knowing what to do. And, and I think it's tricky. I have a lot of compassion um, for pastors in general, but in that situation, because it's, you know, some people expect that from a pastor, um, that that's what a pastor will and should do in that situation. And so I think you can live with a little bit of, if I don't do that, then, you know, am I, am I not meeting the expectation? Yeah. But on the other hand, I think that's part of the inner, inner work is, is being able to say, can I step out of the constraints of what might be expected or what I feel like the, the obligatory duty might be here and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and really observe what's needed, what's needed um, right now and what and what can I do? And maybe that's nothing. Maybe that's simply being there. Maybe it's not being there at all. But it's so much easier, I think, to, to think of filling the gap with action. Uh, I think we're oriented around that culturally, particularly, um, that inaction can feel like we're not doing what we should. And I think sometimes that's the opposite of uh, what's actually true. Yeah. My, my parents several years ago in, in Australia, they uh, live in the country and they were driving into the city. It was a several hour drive um, to go visit some dear friends. They'd been friends for you know, a couple of decades, 30 years maybe. And they were about 20 minutes away from their friend's house when the wife called and said that her husband had suddenly died just completely oh. unexpectedly. And uh, this this was a wealthier family and they had a guest house. So they had their house and then through the window, you could see the guest house. And my parents said to the wife, oh, we're so sorry. We'll, we'll turn around. Like you don't have to host us, of course. We'll turn around and head home. And the wife said to my parents, no, I think what would help is if you stay and just keep the light on in the guest house and it'll mm-hmm. help me just to see that the light is on and that you're there. And so my parents stayed for several days, just lived in the basically the neighboring house, kept the light on. And then the wife was able to knock on their door or have a meal with them or not um, as she needed. I, I've, I've found that to be such a profound metaphor. 
And I remember in our church, we, we had a young mum, uh, you know, one of my friends died and we had this young mum with these young kids. And her friend for months would simply knock on the door with a bottle of laundry detergent. Mm. And the friend would say, look, um, I'm here to do your laundry, which of course is a very intimate thing to do. But they were, they were friends. And she said, so I'm going to do your laundry unless you tell me not to. It was, it was a very well handled, proactive move with full power to the, to the widow. Yes. What's, what's maybe an example of something that someone's done tangibly that has been relief for you? Mm, that's such a good question. Well, and I think, you know, what I love about that story, I love both of those stories. Those are beautiful pictures. I think, um, what I love about the laundry story is that, you know, often what happens is people will say something like, well, let me know if there's anything you need. Yes. Which now I have another job. So now, (laughs) and no one means, you know, I, it's so hard to talk about because no one means ill will in in any of that. They're not trying to give me another job. I really think, Amy, we need you to tell us, because I I hear what you're saying. You do not want well-meaning people to listen to this and think, well, you know, come on, because I think you're you're actually giving us what we need. Okay. So I'll, so I'll be, I'll be bold (laughs) in the way that I say it then. Um, you know, I think saying to someone, let me know if you need anything alleviates the responsibility that people feel to do something. So I don't have to name anything specific, but you know that I'm available. But what it feels like often to the grieving person and certainly felt like to me is now you've just now you just put a boulder in my lap of now I have to think of options of what could be helpful or not. And I also have to consider, is this something that you would really want to do or be willing to do or not? Or, or now are you going to feel obligated because you've yeah, said... What if I ask you to do something that's way too much and you yes, don't know how to say no? And you don't know how to say no to me. Then that's another... Now we have another relational anxiety situation. And so... I often, it's been helpful for me when people have given me options um, and have said, I could bring a meal. I could come over and sit with you. um, I can check in again with you next week. You know, giving me some options to choose from or, or if none of that sounds good, then I will, I'll think of some more things and, and come back to you next week. You know, just giving me permission to say yes or no, or maybe or not yet um, was incredibly helpful. Um, I had a friend just this last week, actually. I, you know, I'm part of what I'm navigating is single parenthood um, right. and what that looks like. And you know, I have four children. Two of them are in college. Two of them are still at home, um, and they're very busy kids involved in a lot of things. And so I asked a friend if she would be able to um, give my daughter a ride home from a softball practice because it happened to be that my son needed to be picked up at exactly the same time. And I can't be two places at once. And she very graciously said yes, but also said, could I also just come and pick her up? My daughter would love that if she rode with her to practice. And so she offered it to me in a way that just felt like this would be great for me if your daughter also rode with me (laughs) to us to practice. Um, but she did me a tremendous favor. I didn't need her to do that, but it certainly opened up more time for me and was incredibly helpful to me. And so, um, options are good and anything, any way like that, I think that you can kind of just turn it even in the way that you offer it to where 
it doesn't feel like, um, I don't know how, quite how to articulate it, but it wasn't so much of a, can I do this favor for you? It was more like, can we just have her ride with us? That would be fun, you know, but it, I knew what she meant and it really helped me. Yeah, it certainly feels like when you're in this situation, the relational bank account is overdrawn. Like you're calling in a lot more favors than you can do. Yes. And so you feel like you owe a lot of people. And of course, they don't feel owed. You know, they're, they're thrilled that they're giving you relief. But the idea that your friend's saying, actually, this is a gift to me, makes you feel much more human. Yes. Uh, in the friendship. Yes. And it, you know, I think we have such a tendency towards reciprocity and to feel like yeah. reciprocity is is always needed. And it's tricky in this, you know, situation with kids where you want to, you know, carry your own load in one sense of when you when you've committed to do something to be able to follow through, but also yeah. just the realities. I've learned a lot about the realities for single parents. It's a tremendous challenge. Um yeah. to be able to navigate all of that. And so for me to have some permission to not always be perfectly reciprocal and for that to be really okay um, and not even discussed is has been an amazing gift to me. Yeah, you know, I think we all understand communication theory, the push versus the pull. You know, with mm. our phones, you set up your mail. Do you want your mail pushed to you or do you want to go get it? I think what you're sharing with us, for those who are listening who want to be helpful to somebody in grief, is is grief care is push theory. When you're saying to the person you're trying to care for, call me if you need anything, what Amy is saying to us is you've now given her a job that she now has to set up a spreadsheet and figure out who's offered to help, what can they do, and now I have to... You're like the project manager of the care. Yes. But, but if we all see this as push theory where, hey, Amy, I'm going to call you on Thursday and I'm going to offer to do this unless you say no... That's more push than pull. You don't have to do anything. You can not even answer the phone if you don't want to. Yes. And it's understood up front. I think that's just a very helpful, simple thing that most people can do. The, the other thing uh, we've coached people on, there's two things, Amy, is one is we've often assigned um, a, a communication coordinator. It sounds terrible to say, but it's one... Because even though like, you know, especially when you're in a church community, you know a few hundred people and you feel close to them. You can't manage all those people. And so... Right. We simply allocate this one person is going to work with Amy and that person's going to liaise between Amy and the rest of us. Um, and that's for updates and what's needed. And that relieves you of tremendous burden as well, I think. It absolutely does because you, you know, there's so much, um, there's so much coming at you, you know, of, of things to things that you just have to attend to, particularly around death. There's just a lot of, you know, immediate details, um, that really, Oh yes. It's a nightmare. And that's another thing that has been a big, (laughs) big piece of learning for me that I, in understanding how challenging a lot of that is. So you're already getting all of that. You also want to, you know, answer the texts and emails and calls to let people know that you appreciate it, but you cannot possibly, attend to it. And then there's just the logistics of life keeps moving, you know, and you do need to eat and, and all of those things. And so I think any way that that communication can be streamlined is a tremendous gift. I also think that, you know, unfortunately, sometimes when a person can't respond or doesn't respond to, um, can I help you in this way? Or, you know, whatever that might be, the perception is often a, well, they don't want or need my help. Right. 
and you know, sometimes that's true. Maybe I don't need it in that particular way. But I think part of what you're getting at is there is just a level of feeling overwhelmed in, in every way um, that has nothing to do with wanting help or not wanting help. It's, I just may not even be able to articulate, you know, what, what would be helpful. I don't even know, you know, yeah. perhaps yeah. right now what might be helpful. And so for the grieving person to have some freedom to say, I don't know, I don't know when I will know, <laughs> check back with me, um, check back with this person um, who I'm communicating with and they will let you know is tremendously helpful. Yeah. Amy, just as we wrap up, um, I want to be mindful of your time here, but um, just tell us about a, a couple of people in your life who enjoy talking to you about Darren or enjoy you talking about Darren. That's that's another area that I think people don't realize just what a, what a joy it can be to share stories. What does yeah, that provoke yeah. in you? So I have a group of girlfriends who, um, you know, they are really the people who... Um, they were the people who, after everyone else had left, just found themselves to be the people who were kind of still at my house. And several of them didn't, it's a small group, but a few of them didn't even know each other well prior to that. But we've kind of become a a little group in a new way, um, you know, since Darren has died and they all knew him in various contexts. And um, they will often, when we get together, tell a story about him. One of my friends, um, a close friend of mine, I've known her since we were in elementary school, um, was, was telling this group a story about, she, she broke her ankle. This is probably 10 years ago, um, just decimated her ankle, had four small kids, um, and was in our church. You know, Darren was the pastor at the time. And, um, he came over one day to, to pray with her and just to see how she was doing. And, you know, he walked in and he said, how are we doing with food? You know, and she said, we've got plenty of food. And he looked around, <laughs> he looked around her house and this was just very Darren. And he said, who is cleaning your house? <laughs> and she said, <laughs> the house was a disaster. She said, and it was evident on his face that he was aware that it was a disaster and this was troubling to him. And, and she knew him well enough to, to not be offended, but it was just yeah. very daring. And he said, yeah. you know, well, I'm going to get this taken care of. And, and within an hour, you know, a, a housekeeper had called her and, and asked when she could come over and, you know, was coming over for the next, you know, couple of months, you know, while my friend recuperated because she couldn't walk, you know, at all. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, it was so, it's so fun just to hear those kind of stories that were just, he was just this big, you know, personality, you know, just fun, but also just very blunt about things like that in ways that aren't, weren't always perhaps the most appropriate <laughs> in the moment. Um, but, you know, got, he got, he took care of it and that's what he did. He tended to just jump in and take care of things as needed. And it was such a gift, you know, to her family, but it was such a gift for me, you know, in retrospect to hear that story and, and for us to be able to all laugh about it and, and how, how that was so typical of something he would do. Oh man. Darren was one of those guys that even if you hadn't met him, he'd had a profound impact on you. I think particularly, I know you know this, Amy, but in, in the world of pastors, like I think you felt seen by Darren. If you were a mm -hmm. pastor, I think you felt seen and understood. And his ability to cross theological lines and, and hold loosely convictions for the sake of caring for pastors, I think that's why so many people who had never actually met him, or maybe they'd met him at a conference or something, but wouldn't say they knew him. They deeply mourned when they heard the news because he, mm. he like, 
he poured himself out for other people in church ministry and in unique ways that like it was clearly a calling of his it was really something well and i think particularly in you know later years you know in the in more recent years you know prior to when he died he you know and having gone through what he'd gone through and being removed from ministry and just kind of experiencing that you know personal implosion is the word i usually use because i think that's the best way to describe it you know there were a lot of people he we had some great encouragement at that time, but there were a lot of people who he had relationships with that time who he never heard from again, you know, at mm. when that happened yeah. and really realized, I think in those years, I think Darren was always an encourager and was always someone who was concerned about encouraging people. But, you know, one of our mentors says, and still says that, you know, the biggest obstacle to transformation is, is often discouragement. And so, you mm. know, just the idea of having people who are, are there to just speak some kind of encouraging word to you, a a small kind word. Um, I think Darren really learned how powerful that is um, and really committed himself to doing that, you know, for people, particularly in the later years of his life. And so after he died, I heard from, I, I'm not exaggerating to say thousands of people who were telling me stories about Darren sent me this email or Darren sent me a text or called me. And I really had no idea the scope of, of all he was doing with that. But I think it came out of a lot of personal loss and, and personal pain for him, you know, to realize the importance of that, how, how much it mean, we mean to each other um, and how important that encouragement is. Yeah. Amy, is there anything else you'd like us to know or anything else you want to say? Well, I think with, with regard to grief, you know, I, I notice in myself, you know, it's only been, it's not even been a year and a half since Darren died. So I really, really pretty new, you know, in this process yeah. still. Yeah. But I, I notice in myself often that, and this is a, a personality, you know, temperament tendency of mine anyway, to to always feel like I should be further along. Uh, I probably yeah, should have already yeah. done more. I probably should be further along. And I think that happens to us in grief, feeling, you know, goodness, shouldn't I have taken care of this by now? Even shouldn't have all the thank you notes been written by now? <laughs> shouldn't I have handled any number of things better? Shouldn't I feel differently? Shouldn't I be less tired or sad? And there's no timeline, you know, is what I often say to myself and what I would often say to people in grief. Um, I think there are things to to look out for and be aware of yourself and within yourself to know if you might need more help or, or something different. But there's really no standard or correct timeline for this. We all just have to kind of meander our way through. And so I say that as a means of encouragement. Um, for people who are in any stage of a, of a grieving process. Uh, I love that. Yeah, we we typically look for two signs of ill health and grief, which is, can you not get out of bed on a regular basis? Like once right. in a while, it's fine. And then are you trying to harm somebody? Anything else is, is an A plus in the school of grief, I think. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's good to be reminded of that um, for sure. Oh man, yeah. Amy, I'm so grateful you were willing to come back on um, because I do think you've put your finger on such a challenging area. So many people want to help and and are afraid of doing the wrong thing. And in that anxiety do end up, frankly, doing the wrong thing, or maybe the better way to say it is not caring well. I I think you've given us actually some very tangible things to to help. So I appreciate it. I know it costs you to talk about it. I'm really grateful that you were willing to come on and do so. Oh, I'm so glad to be invited to do so. I also think it's a, I do think it's a very important topic as well. And I think we can all 
do our best to learn to help each other. We're all going to be on one side of this or the other, you know, at one time right. we're going to be the grieving person or we're going to be the person trying to help, you know, trying to care. Um, and so I think the more we can do to help each other along the way, the better. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.